What's up, what's up? Welcome to The One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano. I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. And oh my gosh, we're already halfway through the season. It's really going fast. Anyway, just a quick reminder that the Patreon page is up. The second episode, the second bonus episode is already up discussing Corpus Christi. So two more bonus episodes this season discussing the films of 2019 that were nominated alongside Parasite. So that's exciting. All right, so let's get started. For this episode, we're going to talk about the film of well, best foreign language film at the 58th Academy Awards. That film is the official story, or in its original language, La Historia Oficial, co-written and directed by Luis Puento. So this was Argentina's first win and third nomination. So for a quick summary, this is about Alicia, a high school history teacher, and uh, her husband, Roberto, who have an adoptive daughter named Gabby. After her estranged friend, Anna, comes back from exile uh, and then tells the story of her imprisonment where she was raped and then um, she saw women in prison who got pregnant gave birth but then never really had their child and those children were given into adoption to rich families so that becomes the thing that starts alicia wondering whether gabby is actually a daughter of a desaparecida or a disappeared person so while doing her own research she encounters sarah a mother of a desaparecida who believes gabby could be her granddaughter and that doesn't go well with Roberto because he is now angered by this um, thinking that Alicia has. So that's a quick summary of the official story. So our guest for this episode is from the United States. He blogs in the Silver Screening Room since 2008. And I remember those times because when I started blogging myself, he's one of the first people that I followed. So um, oh. please welcome Walter Hallman. Hey, hey, what's up? Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, we're trying to find like oh, a good uh, episode to do this. And this seems like the great year to start. So, yeah. Yeah. Happy to have you here. Happy to be yeah. here. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited because I, I had not seen this movie before. But 1985 is one of my favorite year four movies because uh, two of my all time favorites out of Africa and Mishima were released that year. So it's fun to explore more. I love to hear an out of Africa fan say that because I also love out of Africa. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. um, so can you tell the listeners where can they find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me at silverscreeningroom.com. That is where I, as I said, have been, as you said, have been blogging since 2008, I think. Um, <laughs> Um, right now, what you can find there are my annual Holman Awards, celebrating the most recent year in film, 2020. Um, 
usually I cross the 18 categories that I do. I have about 35, 32 to 35 films. This year, I have a record 42 different films nominated. So that's great. And I think that just shows what a strong and wonderful year for cinema 2020 was, uh, even without including anything that had to be released in February 2021. Uh, and I tweet at Silver Screener. You're all, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. I'll edit that out. I'll edit that out. I'll edit that out. Don't worry. But listeners, DM me if you're interested in the alt. <laughs> all right. Woo. All right. It's getting heated. All right. So let's get started. The official story. Woo. Um, this is also my first time to watch this film. There is some kind of a reputation with this film coming in. I don't know. Uh, I am probably in a circle of film Twitter where this film has a um, high regard, but uh, I want to know your thoughts first because this is first time. What did you think of the official story? Uh, it was unexpected because as I said, it was my first time, but I had actually never, I didn't read up on it at all. I had never knew what it was about. Um, when it opens with, I think, are they singing the national anthem at the very beginning? Yes. So it opens with that and knowing it's Argentina and having some vague idea of the history of Argentina. It's like, okay, so this is probably going to be one of those political thingamabobs. And then when about, what, 15, 20 minutes in, they introduce the uh, child adoption and the disappeared people thing into it. That And that becomes the whole movie. I was I, it was unexpected. Um, I feel like I learned quite a lot, but it doesn't feel like a movie that's pedagogical. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I, I did that, know. You know, we're learning through the drama instead of, you know, a lot of big speeches that are educating and teaching us. Like, it, it really lets it all play out through the people. Yeah, um, I did take note of that. I really like how they started with the national anthem because that really sets the tone of the film. This is going to be about uh, a societal experience, but in the most, I don't know, so in the most um, evident, uh, visible, but still not uh, preachy of ways. Because it's not just a scene of just people singing. It focuses on the people and especially on uh, Alicia. Mm -hmm. So you already know that this is going to be not this is going to be a story, a personal story in the, in the larger context of things. And that's one of the strengths of the film is that, like you said, um, you know, when you're when your character is a teacher, there's already this uh, danger of like the film actually also teaching it because there's already a, an alibi. To start teaching the audience when you have someone who is teaching or like making speeches, you know, the same way that I feel a lot of times when I see um, characters like priests or like activists as film characters, I am very um, conscious of like how they're written because it's a very easy trap for writers to fall into and just like, you know what? Viewers would understand why he would give a big speech. So just give him the big speech because pe people expect this big speech. Um, but I do love that, you know, this person is a teacher and 
uh, Alicia is a teacher and she's our anchor in the story. But it is a very internal journey for her. Um, you really see her in a lot of moments reacting to the things around her, to the friends, to the family. And I don't know. I mean, I really love the fact that it is kind of qu- there is a quiet center of the story and it's its teacher and that you know in turn i'm really talking a lot i'm sorry um she is learning through the journey and we're learning as well because of the quietness in the middle of this huge political turmoil that's unfolding in her eyes yes (laughs) 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 yeah oh my gosh no, I, I do like what you say there about uh, her role as the teacher because it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is, you know, throughout we do see her in class debating with these more uh, liberalized students uh, who are questioning the accuracy of the history that she's teaching. And I, I, I just think of the one scene where she's sending back the papers and uh, the one guy who's really been challenging her on stuff. She says, you say that he had his throat cut, out, uh, his tongue cut out so that he couldn't talk. Where's your source for this? Where, where is that? Like, you need some sort of documentation. You can't just say things out of the blue. Okay, amen. And um, it's such a great way to show her still as a teacher, still doing her job, still the importance of education and being able to, and the importance of documentation and how that really is the official story. Uh But uh, our ability to question it and how that, how that documentation only goes so far. It's, uh, I like that. (laughs) It's it's so um, um, fluid and organic. Yeah, and now that now it makes sense, you know, why the title is the official story because I never bothered to ask that question. Usually I think of like, oh, what does what does the title mean? But in the in the in the context of the film. The, like you said, I am I love that word that you said. There is a fluidity in the storytelling. Actually that's one of the things that I took notice that when I first saw it, my initial reaction is my initial reaction is I don't think there's a plot. But I think looking back, I think there is a plot. It's just that it is very internal and it's very smooth flowing that you never really notice like big plot point, big plot point, big plot point. I mean, when you look back, of course you need a, oh, the inciting incident is the, is the friend talking, you know, they're kind of drunk and then she starts um, saying her, her real experience in, in prison and then the mid the, the point of no return is when oops I may be saying the wrong plot points but when um when she finally meets the grandmother and concedes to talking to her or like the climax could be uh, we're all spoilers so whatever when um, <laughs> Roberto finally um, assaults Alicia and that's the climax of the film I'm just throwing big words, uh, but at, when I was when I was watching it, I just think I thought there's no plot. What I mean, it's just we're kind of character driven, but then I just realized it's just so fluid. It's so smooth going 
that I was just along for the ride. And I was never really like, because, okay, kind of go jumping a few decades after. When I watch a Pixar film, I really notice the plot points. I notice this is the inciting incident. This is the midpoint. This is the climax. This is the second act. This is, but this one, it just flows very well. I just had to jump a few decades, which is to show um, that experience that I found like, which went was rewarding because at the end, it is about Alicia's journey. And whether be it a strict adherent to events or just being her in those events, it it really works very well. And it is like, emotionally engaging. You know, it, it did make me think, I think it was Kyle Turner that said on Twitter, um, I think last month, maybe earlier this month, um, that he's not interested in movies where the plot is the, pl- you know, where it's, this is the plot, the plot, and you're plugging in characters to fit the plot. It's like, no, the plot should be what happens because of a character's natural choices. Um, that it shouldn't be incidents where it doesn't really matter who's plugged in, like, it should be all decided by the natural um, character building. (laughs) And even though that sounds obvious, it doesn't really happen all too often and not, as we've been saying, fluidly or organically as it does in this movie. Like, I, I don't... As you said, it feels like there's not really a plot going on. It feels like there's no traditional three-act structure. But if you do look back on it, you'll see it is all there. That's where act one. That's and but it does it, and it's so motivated by uh, how they've crafted the personalities, and not by quote unquote structure. <laughs> yeah, and I love that because you see when. Alicia reacts to people around her, to events around her. The succession of events is really natural. Um, And, you know, when they say that there's no structure or, like, there's no plot, uh, when there's just organic and natural. I mean, if we're going to be very technical in going back to the basics of filmmaking and in writing, everything's planned. But this is how you make it feel organic that this is the way it should go or like this is the way yeah. the story should turn i mean even if it's it's surprising for us audiences when you look back it should not be oh well yeah it makes a lot of sense and it is the it is the inevitable i i love it when stories just like there's no other way but this way whether it's surprising or not this is the way this go- story goes and just being for the ride. And with this one, we are so close to Alicia's character. And it's a testament to the really good writing. I'm joined in with joined in with normally Alejandro's ex- exquisite performance as Alicia. She is the heart and soul of this film. Everything is in her face, her eyes, her what do you her think of that hands. performance? Her, her hands, hands her hair, and the her hands. The scene where she's 
Well, even the scene where she like goes back to the closet and gets out the box and takes out the old clothes and smells him and her hands are shaking the entire time. Like she's trying to keep this face, but you'll just see that off frame and just coming in, her hands are just out of control. And sometimes that's where she's putting all of that nervous energy that, oh my God, what is happening? Could this really be is in these little movements here or there, not in, uh, oh, <laughs> she uses her whole, body, her whole uh, uh, vessel to craft this character. And it's, it's really an extraordinary uh, performance um, of being, you know, not acting, but being as these, as they tell us. Yeah, it is such a complete performance in a way that whether in wide shots or in close-ups, she gets things right. I mean, I remember this one moment when um, I think her husband is in the in the hospital in the airport, and she just um she was standing after her husband left, and she was just like, um, don't know is she calculating her next move or like is she just thinking about her husband's is she was she, is she just confounded by her husband's, um, insistence to just let things go and like she starts like kind of fixing her hair almost like, I don't know like trying to regain composure or like control of the moment but she knows there's mm -hmm. something more and just like i don't know like defense mechanism i mean i or I, I don't know it's but it's 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 a it's a very physical work but it's not something that it's not something that you would first think of a very physical performance because when right. we think of physical performance we think of like actors dancing or like actors like running but this one even when she's just like sitting with her friend and I know I'm doing a lot of like physical demonstrations, but I'm just going to do my best to describe it. And when she is drunk with her friend and, you know, she's just like has his, her oh hand in her face and in her hair. And then when they're both kind of drunk and like, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not drunk. Yeah. That is some of the best drunk acting I've ever seen. Just the way to, uh, when her friend starts getting more serious and she has that look on her face of, oh, I need to focus on this. And like, it's so starting to sober her up and she's like, oh, oh. but she's not overdoing it. You just see it in the eyes and in just how much, oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> it's like looking into a mirror of my Saturday nights. <laughs> yeah. I'll trust you on that because I don't drink. So like, oh yeah, you're a good judge of like, Look, people looking drunk, but I, 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 even if I don't drink, like I, I see that you know when she's like, ha, 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 and then like she's trying to like, you know, kind of really forcing like, she's focus, focus, <laughs> and it's like, and it's all in one take, and the camera shifts positions, and now she becomes very emotionally engaged, and um, her friend, uh, another extraordinary actress, uh, her name is uh, uh Chinchuna Villafagne as the friend, um, you know, that smooth, inevitable going there until she explodes. And you know, her, her outburst of emotions is a combination of like, I really need to say this. And at the same time, I'm kind of letting go because I'm kind of drunk and mm -hmm. I don't drink what I've seen people going through that, uh, smooth journey when they're drunk. And, um, it's, it's really good. <laughs> it's a really great performance and great performances all around. Yeah. I, I also love, we've been mentioning Roberto. Um, 
I think one of the things about that performance that's easy to underrate and the way that character is written too is how he's not mm, actively villainous or for the most part that that he really is somebody who took advantage of a situation and would rather not know anything else (laughs) and as long as it's benefiting like why question it why get into it why um yeah it's that i guess that weird banality of evil type thing (laughs) um not to say he's evil just very mm, that he allows it yeah hector alterio finds those moments in between where it's not it's not evil it's it's something like probably like afraid of knowing what's true kind of there's also this i think protective husband instinct with him like why do you have to get yourself in that shit you know and it's like it's a mixture of like is he also afraid of losing a gabby is he um is he gonna is he gonna endanger uh alicia when she goes into that spiral or is she just crazy uh but then you know it's all building up that's why i think you know i kind of mentioned this a while ago where um in the end when uh they had a confrontation alicia and roberto and then roberto explodes in anger and it's not like any depiction of um of domestic violence that i've ever seen it it's it is i don't know there is this intensity to it the way that was choreographed basically um it's not just like a one hit it's multiple hits and then he he I don't know the English word. My gosh! But when Alicia's hands is through he the door, he crushes her hand in a door. He he crushes her hand in the door. I'm like, this is so too much, and it's not even the bloodiest of domestic violence depicted on screen. But yet, it's so raw. The emotions are so intense, and then you see the regret afterwards and like she he just burst in anger and not to apologize for it but it was just a moment of confusion but at the same time she is also like kind of resolute like no not standing for that anymore well especially too since it comes with his character in a lot of you know it takes place the year that the uh dictatorship was falling and um, you see that with his business, too. His business is coming apart, and now the family is coming apart. And all of it is related to the advantages that he took as somebody supporting this regime. And, you know, he can't have an outburst against his business partners, so he takes it out on her. And it is so shocking, because he is genuinely so tender seems so tender throughout the rest of the movie. Like you watch it and you go, yeah, I I get why he doesn't want to lose this. He does love his wife. He does love his kid. Like it's probably the one uh, (laughs) foreign film nominee that doesn't have husbands cheating on their wives. And uh, from this year. And um, (laughs) so when he does have that opposite, it is such a shock, not just because you don't 
you know, you wouldn't expect Roberto to start beating, but also because it is so purposeful. The fact that he does crush her hand, that he sees it and goes, oh, okay, bam, like shuts the door in her hand. Like he's seeing what he has and using it against her. And it's horrifying and shocks him too, it seems. Yeah, he there's this shock and exhaustion after that, um, after he does those things so at least yeah in the end i know the feeling of like you know when you burst in anger and like you just let yourself burst and then after that you realize oh oops shit like yeah, and suddenly the, the the adrenaline goes down i'm like i'm so shitty right now that after. <laughs> well, i think for him too it's that realization to himself that he is not just a passive part of uh, these atrocities, that he is somebody who, when it comes down to it, is capable of something horrible. Yeah. And he's almost not, I mean, again, not to justify domestic violence, but it's not even that scene that when, she, when every time he shouts at her, every time he rejects her suggestions, every time he denies the, any possibility, when he ultimately assaults Alicia, the thing that makes it even more intense is that it's all—it's not coming from from hate to her. It's in a very twisted, wrong version of love. We're like, just for our peace, stop saying that our daughter is a is from a desaparecida or like just stop saying it you know it's it's a very twisted wrong version of love for him um well i which i is think just, at that yeah I, I think at that point it goes into self-preservation yeah so but i don't know how much of that person. is love but right well i i think that's no. what um this movie and so many movies about um, such periods in history teach us is that regular people are very capable, quote unquote, non-evil people are very capable of the most ruthless, horrible things. Yeah, and this event in their life just brings out, brought the worst, brought out the worst, (laughs) brought the worst out of him. Uh, again, not really justifying domestic violence. I'm just saying that, you know, he's flawed, they're flawed. But, kind of going back because we went straight to the end. It's my fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was my fault. Um, do you do a lot of spoilers on this? Sorry to the listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. We we go all the okay, way great. with spoilers. Yeah. Um, <sighs> I think we already kind of talked about it a while ago a bit, but I also love how it depicts the juxtaposition of the personal journey versus the political journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, per- perhaps the most political scenes are either those in the classroom where they're talking about history because that it's unavoidable. They're going to talk about history. Yeah. Or uh, when, uh, when Alicia goes out and she sees the protests, uh, which in context are the protesters are the mothers of Plaza de Mayo. Uh, we're going to talk about it later in another nominated film, but it's about 
uh, that Madres of Plaza de Mayo, they are a group of mothers. <laughs> Duh. Uh, who, because the dictatorship started in 73, I think, 73. And then, uh, by the way, that, that dictatorship, that dirty war, that dirty war it's called, is a U.S.-backed state terrorism in Argentina that led to 9,000 to 30,000 people disappeared. So that is the moment in time that Argentina's um, cap, this film is in, you know, it's in the, it's already in the falling out, but this is say America. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, the, the, the <laughs> sorry, the protests that Alicia is seeing are the mothers of the people that were disappeared, that started calling for the government to act on the disappearance since 1977, and I think until as uh, until recently they're still going there, and they're now the grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, because they never really stopped searching for justice, and. Again, when you when you have moments set in historical, at least tumultuous political times, it's easy to get preachy. When you have like st- again activists there, streamers saying political statements, it's so easy to fall in that um, uh, f- uh, mistake of like, you know, use using that as a scapegoat to start preaching. But I just love when the way they put Alethea's awakening and internal journey in the context of those scenes, it's chilling. It's it's really chilling and on a personal note, which I would say later. But what do you think of the way the film handles the personal and the political? Well, it's the way that you... They always say that is the way to change hearts and minds uh, when it comes to political conversation is not through... Uh, 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 dialectics and theory, but is through the personal stories. Like, uh, this is how, this is why I vote or think this way because of these experiences that I've gone through. And so uh, I love the, the, <clears throat> the protest scenes because, you know, me as a viewer, I don't know what that is, but I know what it is. Like I, I had never heard of the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo before this movie. And yet I did not need to be told why they were there, who they were, (laughs) what was like, I got it. (laughs) Because they just, it's enough that you just see it and that Alicia and Sarah have a conversation about it. Like that's enough. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is enough. Um, The personal is political. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I also like how uh, the most interesting of cases, um, you know, usually when when we talk about like making a film or like writing, sometimes writers have to be kind of sadists in a way that you have to give your characters some suffering or like some journey or conflict so that they would have, it would be exciting to watch because there is a journey. There is a, you know, that. But, I love that this film focuses on middle class privilege because it shows and then the film shows how the safety is actually unreal when the dangers around them starts to catch up with them. It is harder to 
ignore, but at the same time, that that middle class um, status that they have is their armor to just look at the other way and say that you know the people that are being disappeared are probably the guilty ones. You know, they are probably like uh, insurgents or like uh, in activists. Um, they never really mentioned communists, right? Or did they? I thought they did. Uh, yeah, most probably since this is a in the context of things, this is a U.S. backed uh, dictatorship. So probably you're gonna go after the communists as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, most of the time they yeah. do say stuff like reactionary or um, reactionary. Uh, there was one specific word that they use, and I don't even remember it. Insurgents. No, that wasn't it. Subservience. No. Um, subversive, not subservient. Subver- subversive. Subversives. Subversives. Yeah. And that's also the reason why Anna, the friend, the drunk friend, starts to come after Roberto because she believes it was actually Roberto who ratted, their, ratted her out and caused her to um, have that pain. And also goes to show, like, you know, when you have dictatorships like this, you know, whatever you call it, is it U.S. backed or whatever country is backing it? You know, when you have these kinds of governments, the betrayal goes into very personal levels. And when person re- when a person really buys the political ideology, the dominating political ideology, which we'll see in another foreign language from nominee later, I don't care if you're family, you're, you're bad because you have a different political ideology. You go to jail and you deserve it. I don't feel bad about it. Um, well, there's a form of opportunism yeah, exactly. there too. Yeah. Cause you see the rest of his family, the rest of Roberto's family, uh, I mean they look like they're doing yeah. Like his brother had to move in back in with his parents. His parents like look kind of look down on him because he has done so well in a corrupt time. And where was I going with that? Shit, I like completely lost track. <laughs> I think family things. Family things, yes. And so, yeah. So that for some people it is, and I think in Roberto's case, it's not even a political thing. Like you are a danger to this nation. It really is. It really does feel like I don't like this chick and this might also help me. So why not? <laughs> If he did do it, because there is some gray area over whether or not he did. And that's another horrible thing is that it leaves you with so much doubt about who you can trust, who your friends were, who your family is. Uh, it, it not, not even the fact that they did do it, but the fact that they could be capable of doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, like the, I film said, doesn't the give political you like, yeah. is personal. <laughs> yeah. The film doesn't give you like easy way out to like to just put people in like she's good, she's bad, she's. I mean, all of the characters that we see here have their own motivations why they do something, whether for good or for bad. And you know, it's easy for us to judge because we're not there. But when you see them, for example, when that that scene, you know, when um the family like lunch and they're starting to fight about things like um. The political context, and then, uh, fe- should I the feel bad about succeeding? In- <laughs> yeah, it's a very descriptive way of like, 
these conversations about politics is much more, it's harder to bring it down to the polit personal level. You know, when politicians speak things, it's easy to like, well, you know, it's just this or just that, you know, it's a matter of fact, you know, they're in, in their bigger perspective. But when you talk about the smaller things and like, well, should I feel bad now? Or like, you know, again, the personal is political. It's, it's, it's difficult to separate them. The film shows it in that way as well. Yes. Hmm. And anybody who's gotten into Facebook or in person arguments with their family members on the other political uh, aisle, um, <laughs> knows this experience well. Doesn't have to be on Facebook. Sometimes it's over dinner. <laughs> Sometimes it's in the car on the way back from Target. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Um. Uh, another scene that was really memorable for me is when Alicia asks for guidance to the priest. Oh my gosh. And then the priest twists it and says. Are you being ungrateful that you have a child, and uh, you're you're are rejecting God's grace or whatever, and then he starts to not listen to her and just go on with his service, and she is desperately asking for help, and it also goes to show another institutional complicity, the church that was supposed to like I don't know what is the reason aside from like supposed to be like establishing good morals but in this moment in time when there's so much turmoil happening you know that there <laughs> anyway I also know the feeling that's being in a Woo! what do you think of that scene oh it's breathtaking because for me she believes that he knows the truth and but also uh, for me, I didn't know if for him, he was like, oh, this is too dangerous, so I don't want to get involved. Or if it more is a, I know what happened, I ain't going to talk about it because <laughs> I'm, I'm complicit. Again, it, it goes back to, um, it could be one or the other. Yeah. It's hard to read people in this film. And even Alicia is having a hard time kind of reading people sometimes because I think... When she had an awakening or like it could possibly, it catches up with her now. I think there is a part of her which thinks like if, if now that now it's affecting me, maybe the people around me would start to care, but then no one really did. So that it now confronts her like, oh, so now this is how it feels like, you know, when the, the, the mothers of Plaza de Mayo are protesting and for her, it's just like, it's a thing to watch or like it just stops the traffic. But when it's her now and and the denial is on a more personal level, like her husband is shrugging her off or like the priest ignoring her, it it becomes more, the stakes for her are even higher because she now realizes what it is. I mean, of course, it could not be equated, you know, um, people losing their family, losing their children to people having uh, children benefiting from that disappearance but you know it's mm -hmm. as entangled um, mess of a political situation that goes into the most intimate of things 
and the things that they care about the most, which is their child, Gabby, because yeah. I do believe they really love her so much. And um, oh, yeah. they, they wouldn't want to lose her. And I think there's a part of Alicia who actually like kind of pull it, push and pull, like, do I really want to find out? I think she's had those moments. So like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's I, I, I think, I, I think I'm right. Wow, <laughs> I think I'm right. Um, that's why when she was looking for her daughter, you know, she wants to look for her daughter, goes to the hospital, look for records. But there is, there was a point when she is kind of avoiding Sarah. Mm-hmm. Because now, now she's faced. Do you want to explain? Yeah, because now she's faced with the... It's one thing to investigate and say, I want to know the truth. And another thing to have that truth, maybe that truth could be staring you in the face. And two, she had been lying about why she was working with the mothers to... Like, they think that she has lost somebody herself and she's actually looking to find out if uh, Gabby is the child of somebody that was lost. Um, so I, I think there is also a bit of guilt and a bit of like, are they going to suspect me of something? Are they going to blame me? Um, do they think I'm complicit? Am I complicit? <laughs> yeah. And probably this, um, kind of avoidance of responsibility or like a consequence because, you know, she's still, even when she's already doing the investigative work, she's still kind of distancing a bit. Mm-hmm. That's why there is this like she still tries to put on an arm more and then but it catches up with her. Um, you know, and it becomes this um fascinating, weird relationship shared experience that maybe with um Sarah, you know, Sarah who lost a child and got and then Alicia who might lose her child when confronted by the truth. And in some way, they have this uh, connection that is both um, horrifying, but at the same kind of comforting, you know, when they know that they have this shared, I don't know, it's it's a really sad subplot, you know. And I think it's on another level reassuring to each of them that after being told on Alethea's side, after being basically told that she's crazy or ungrateful, like being told on this other side, no, you're not. Like this, there is a road that this leads down, and I'm sure Sarah, having to work with the uh, mothers of the uh, Plaza de Mayo, have, you know, one assumes that they're all experiencing the same thing: a lot of red tape, a lot of blocking of their um, attempts to find out the truth, and so it is. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, but it is reassuring to meet someone else who's like, yeah, you're not crazy. This is happening. This is real. Yeah, probably like you know, in uh, uh, when when I don't know, um, maybe you could speak for other examples. But when someone, um, for example, you lose, you lost a, a special a, a someone in life, like someone passed away, and then people around you like move on. <laughs> you know, it's been six months. Come on, and then you find another person is suffering from grief and like, well. You know, that shared, you know, that shared experience, which is like kind of sad and it's also reassuring. Yeah, um, it's like the worst is true, but also at least I'm not nuts. 
Yeah, misery loves. It's a lot of complex <laughs> emotions happening at once. Yeah. yeah, and it's very much <laughs> and complex, I think too com- complexified. And I think too, she she did want there was a part there was a large part of her that wanted to be told that wanted to be reassured that no 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 we have the mother yeah and she gave the baby away she didn't want it she's fine it's fine. And uh, she can't, she doesn't get that. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of been hearkening back to say like how, how I relate to how I personally relate to this because, um, you know, in, in Argentina, the, you know, in the seventies to the eighties, they had a dirty war which caused these amounts of 9,000 9, to 30,000 uh, disappearances. Um, in my country, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, we had also a martial law, also U.S.-backed, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, less than 1,000 people disappeared, um, 3,000 at least murdered, uh, 35,000 documented tortures, Seventy to one hundred thousand incarcerations, um, and it is just you know very. Uh, I don't know. The film hit me on that note because we're kind of seeing a return to the form right now, if you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. um, politically and. Um, it's really hard because, you know, I don't know anything about the Dirty War. But when I saw it, I kind of saw our story as well. And it kind of looks, it kind of looked Argentinian. Wow. <laughs> no. So when I, when I saw these stories, I'm like, wow. Um, so sad as well that, you know, it's, it's, it's like Alicia and Sarah having this um, shared experience of grief and like loss or whatever. Like me, a Filipino, seeing an Argentinian film talking about a thing that we have a similarity and also happened at the same time. And I'm like, why is this film kind of reflective of, you know, it, I'm not seeing a Filipino film, but it almost felt like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, it's also kind of confronting. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's... This is one of the saddest episodes I have recorded so far. I'm just going to say right now with the official I'll say that, though, too. <laughs> official story. They're one of the saddest, and I guess that is true, but I don't really... it. It's not such an overwhelmingly maudlin film. There are, great, there are so many moments of levity and just normalcy. It, it doesn't feel bogged down in the quagmire of uh, grief. Yeah. That's why it's more engaging because, you know, it's, you know, when you watch it, you know, it, it's not, it's just very real to how life whiplashes with emotions, you know, yeah. one moment you're laughing and the other moment you're like, <gasps> you know, those breakthroughs. <laughs> yeah. I love this one line when the student, cute student. Uh, says history is written by murderers. Oh my gosh! Yes. Do you want to go there? <laughs> I mean, what I mean, what I don't know what else there is to say except yeah. 
yeah yeah it's true they always say yeah. history is written by the victors in order to be a victor they had to be a loser and uh, usually that means war and historically <laughs> you know you don't lose a war without uh killing without being killed so yeah yeah um it's what i thought i also yeah. it, it, it oddly not to go on a tangent but it did remind me of this line um there's that British series, I think it's based on some books that takes place in an alternate history where Africa colonizes Europe. And somebody uh, speaking against that series said, it's funny how people always assume that everyone else will colonize. And <laughs> hold on, I am coming to a point here. <laughs> and it does remind that at least in America, like, it does feel like we're taught that, oh, man, everything was really backwards until the Europeans and the Americans turned things around and modernized things and life is all the better because of it. And, you know, if we didn't do it, somebody else would have. And it's like, but historically, uh, that's not true. Like, we are the barbarians. And, as you know, we are the ones starting the dirty wars and funding uh, dictatorships. Uh, it's just that we get the rosy side of it because we're writing the history. As someone from a country that has been colonized by the United States uh, for 30 years, yes, <laughs> I agree with that completely. Um, our history has also been rewritten to be in the sense that, oh, the Spanish has abused us, the Japanese has abused us, but the Americans really helped us. And I'm like, hmm. Let's see that. Let's see the massacres that the Americans have done to our country. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't want to put you in an awkward position, but... I'm not <laughs> in an awkward <laughs> position. <laughs> I'm glad that you're not in an awkward <laughs> position. <laughs> but, yeah, it is just true. And makes you think, because she's a history teacher, and now she is being confronted mm -hmm. by a student who makes her, th makes her question the things she thinks she knows well. History. And when she questions the very essence of history, what is what is she left with? You know, because this is the one that kind of gives her the stature that she has. You know, she's a history teacher. But when the history, the whole history that she knows is put into question, and not only by the students, but by her own experience with the whole Gabby thing. It makes her question, like, mm -hmm. what am I going to be left with? What is now my position in society? What is now my, not my worth, but how, who am I now? You know, what is this history I'm teaching if I'm already questioning it? So that is another fascinating thing. And, I, you know, um, when she loves going makes history, her... but, but when she's confronted by the present and like, ooh, take this down. <laughs> because she has to question the events of the present, it makes her question the historia oficial. I'm so happy you made that connection. <laughs> <gasps> Whoops! Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker. No, that was my whole point. I'm not a Spanish speaker myself. But is the official story? an exact translation or does it also translate to the official history 
historia es story. Okay. Yeah. Like la historia de un amor, the story of my love. Mm. So yeah, la historia de un amor. Anyway, um. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh, I just started singing, and we're not yet in the second half. Usually, I start singing in the second half, not in the first half. Um. Wait, is there a whole floor show? Should I have come with the routine? <laughs> Maybe. Um, one thing here is the characters are kind of made to choose, like to ignore the past or to confront the pain of the present. Um, I do want to ask you, um, what are you the are you the kind of person that just ignores the past, or are you confronting the past even though it's painful? <laughs> Showbiz. <laughs> Sorry. In what way? In life, your own life. Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm somebody that's still um, thinking and confronting stuff that happened in second and third grade and how I could have done that differently. And <laughs> so I, I, um, I guess I'm somebody for whom it's easier to uh, look back at the past and wish that I had done things differently than it is to uh, process the present. Yeah. I think, yeah. For me, it's a... That's a difficult question. It is. I'm sorry. Mostly Um, because I think it really depends on situations. Yeah. There are some things where the natural order of things would take you years, even decades, to just confront things that have happened in the past i mean i've had one thing that i only actually got to confront 10 years after when the person involved is way long dead and i'm like oh yeah it's that thing you know because when you're young it's like you know when you're young it's like well you don't think of things when you're young. Just things happen and you're just being a child. But when you look back. Or you think oh. of things. I'll say too, when you're a child, sometimes you do see things and an alarm goes off. But you're so used to being told that you're overreacting or, oh, no, 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 no. You just don't get it. You d- That you doubt yourself and then sometimes it's only years later that you're like i was right god damn it <laughs> i was yeah. right and all the adults were wrong and they contributed to some suffering yeah um going back to the film i'm sorry i know uh, it's hard it's... to because 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 honestly because it is this film and we are talking about past and present things and um you know with this film it is talking about traumatic events and so it is hard i think in a form such as this <laughs> to get into that kind of stuff yeah Personal i mean looking love. now at, yeah and in the 35 winners i've watched so far for this podcast this is probably like uh one of the hardest to unpack emotionally speaking like you know, I, I have my criticisms of the film, which might, we might go a bit later, but 
this is one of the more you can do it uh, harder to discuss why not why not go into it now now going to it <laughs> um, yeah we're talking about think, the film <laughs> uh, yeah what um or do you have any criticisms of the no. film <laughs> no? all yours um yeah all right i have seen comments made about the film's music being very loud and uh, i don't know um, dated. You know what's funny? Um, I think the main piano theme sounds like the uh, Summer of 42 theme song. Have you seen that movie? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Okay, I saw it ages ago, <laughs> but it's one of those themes that's like when you hear the music from Summer of 42, you'll know it because it was one of those like hit singles. <laughs> Have you seen Summer of 42 in cinemas when it first screened? Well, it was the 70s, so I wasn't born yet. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> no. Um, I acknowledge the criticism. I do think the film, the music is juicing out the emotional moments. It's um, definitely distinct. I, yeah. If I would say the problem, it's with the mixing. I think there are moments mm. when it the music volume should be lower. And I think there are moments when Norma Aleandro is dramatically captivating enough. Like there needs there no there's no need to amp up the music. But I am not as against with the music. As some people do. I mean, I I have heard strong reactions to that music used in the film. I'm I'm shrugging. I know that's not a good audio thing, but like, yeah, I feel basically like whatever. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the official story? I will say when you said the mixing, it reminded me of I was listening to it. I was watching the movie with headphones on, and every time they did a cafe scene. I really was like, oh, is my mom? It, it really, the mixing of the background noises in those scenes and the uh, sound editing for it is so uh, perfect that I kept thinking I was uh -huh. hearing like uh, people putter around the house. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's it. I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's a very good uh, a movie as far as the sound goes. And yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's the official story of the official story. I'm leaving. Goodbye. Ciao. All right. <laughs> Gabi no está. ¿Dónde está Gabi? ¿Dónde está Gabi, Alicia? Es terrible. ¿Qué es terrible? No saber dónde está tu hija. <laughs> En casa de tu mamá. ¿Dónde está mi hija? La mandé con Rosa a casa de tu mamá no. para poder hablar. ¡Solta el ruedo! ¡Solta!
right, so let's talk about how the official story won. So the official story period in Argentina in April 3, Can May 10, where it won Best Actress for Norma Aliano, tried with Cher for Mask. It period in Toronto in September 13, where it won People's Choice Award, now an important award for Best Picture Hopefuls. Uh, it premiered in Chicago in October, Chicago International Film Festival, and had a limited run in the United States in November 8. And then it premiered in Berlin International Film Festival in February of 1986. Again, this was Argentina's first win and third nomination, and it was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars, losing to Witness. Witness. All right, so... Uh, awards run. The official story won Golden Globe, Los Angeles Film Critics, Kansas Film Critics, National Board of Review Top 5, and New York Film Critics for Best Actress. Oh. Normaliando. Golden Globe? Uh, domestic. No, no. New York Film Critics. Oh, oh okay. The Best Actress. I-, I thought you meant it won all of those for Best Actress. Sorry. No. <laughs> um... Sorry, I, I kind of phrased it, phrased it wrong. Yeah. The first wins are for foreign language film. New York Film Critics is for Best Actress. Um, box Office. I don't know if this is complete, but Box Office Mojo says $29,000 in its limited run. Uh, United States. Which is... <laughs> All right. So let's go to the other nominees. I don't know what that translates to in 2000. 21 dollars honestly 20. maybe i don't know all right so the, the nominees are angry harvest from west germany colonel radel from hungary three men in a cradle from france and when father was away in business from yugoslavia all right so we've seen all the nominees i would actually let you take which film would you like to discuss first? Uh, I don't. I don't. Um, I guess the one, one of the ones that I thought really related to the official story the most, as far as um, how far people will go to preserve their um, new status, is Angry Harvest. Angry Harvest from West Germany. It premiered in Berlin, and it is about a man who finds a Jewish woman that jumped out of a train on the way to concentration camp, and he hides her despite all the dangers, and then he proposes that they get married on one condition. He joins the, Christi- uh, the Catholic faith. And as they can have a marriage beyond the war. Uh, that's Angry Harvest, directed by Agnieszka Holland. What do you think of Angry Harvest? Well, as you know, said, what it really gets into is um, the economic, quote-unquote, opportunities that the... Um, uh, that the ghettoizing and the extermination of the Jews was for... Um, other people during World War II in um, German territories. Um, we saw it here too in the United States uh, when the Japanese were put into internment camps, their properties, and you see this a lot in 
place like San Francisco, uh, I mean, California in general, their properties were then taken from them when they were removed to the internment camps and then sold to other people. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting uh, thing to look at, to look at somebody who doesn't think of himself as evil, once again, but just somebody taking op opportunity of a situation, a uh, way to enrich himself, and then he furthers that more by going, the way it introduces that where you think at first like okay he's going to shelter this jewish woman wow a hero and then as the movie progresses it's like oh no a monster like he's basically keeping her his prisoner and knows that there is hope for her that there is an underground that her husband is out there he knows that all this other stuff these opportunities for rescue and to get her reunited with her people are there but he's not going to let her know that because he likes the situation how it is. He wants to have this woman that depends on him, that he can take advantage of, that it, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it's, it's about monsters and opportunists in wartime. Yeah, it's one of the strengths of the film is how it focuses on that because that's probably one of the things that, well, going into the nominees of this category for the past few seasons of covering it, the economic side of the war, you know, the complicity of people with regards to the war. I mean, not everyone super duper hates the Jews, but they're kind of excited when the Jews are taken away because like, oh, now we can buy that land and like or like you know take it for free or not for free but for a cheap price but it shows another face of um, complicity just like in the official story like you said the connection is strong and then um i love how this film feels alive it doesn't feel stilted or like uh uh inorganic uh, the there is a very intriguing relationship at its center, you know, um, at, because at first you see the man kind of wanting to help the woman and then it really shifts into something darker and really taking advantage and abusive even until the very end, you know, uh, it just goes to show how people in, in these kind of high pressure uh, times, you know, like the war or any or political unrest, People can be one thing and also the other. You know, they can be kind and they can be abusive later. It just depends on how they uh, hold themselves in that situation. And I think it's also, the film also goes to show like how far can kindness go when, you know, probably evil is the dominating ideology. How far can you really uh, I don't know, how can you really take that stand to be good when it, being good is a hard thing because they have barriers throughout, you know, just to do things. Like even the, is it Rosa or Rose, the neighbor who really wants to join the resistance, but it's kind of... I thought Rosa was the Jewish woman. I'm sorry, who was that woman? The, but the, uh, the, just, uh, the clergyman's yeah. sister. Yeah. Um, 
the one who's really insistent on doing it, but then kind of flips uh, last minute and accidentally gets herself killed. Mm-hmm. Um, see that we see a world where being good is difficult, and I think it's a very it's a strong film. I think it is a strong film. I think what we see too in it is not so much that being yeah being good is difficult but also that people's motivations really do matter like it's not enough yeah (laughs) because even though there is a part of her that is does want to join this resistance she really takes this opportunity because she does carry a torch for the uh armin mulestal character and the things that he does yeah, it's it's people who are doing what would go, what you would see in another movie. Like, yes, this is the hero's choice, and in what they're actually they have, they're not doing anything out of the goodness of their own hearts, but for another selfish reason. So, I actually thought that, and maybe this was a problem with the subtitles that it was kind of inconsistent with characterizations and kind of uh, leaden sometimes. Like kind of hit mm-hmm. you over the head, and uh, I don't know. There's us. I I do admire what it was trying to go for and trying to show us, but there is a kind of purient nastiness that I I couldn't quite click with. But I loved the Armin Müller-Stahl performance. Yeah. Interestingly. Not the only Armin Mueller star style. Sorry, Armin Mueller style's performance. Ah, sorry. Interestingly, not the only Armin Mueller style performance this year, because he also appears in Colonel Riddle from hey. Hungary, which won jury prize in Cannes and won BAFTA. Actually, it is about oh. um, a man who. Goes upper in it's ranks. A fictionalization. A fictionalization of the of a Colonel Rado, a man who steadily goes up in the ranks, um, while hiding his homosexuality, and then he becomes the part a part to. I I didn't know. Do you? <laughs> It's about a man who climbs the ranks of the military while hiding his homosexuality in the years leading up to World War One in uh, Austria-Hungary, in the Prussian Empire. <laughs> Very e- as easy as that. All right. So, uh, what do you think of Colonel Rado? I thought that was, that was another one where I thought I should like it more than I was, and and I think it's very handsomely mounted. I think it's beautifully shot. I think. That is a story that is so event-driven and not personality-driven. And I guess part of it is this idea that he is so closeted and um, has real no real personality outside of his own uh, ambitions to uh, rise in the ranks. But I still, I, I couldn't really get a good read on who Colonel Radel was. Um, I think maybe having some historical context is helpful because I really had trouble following the uh, political situation there. Um, 
Yeah, I, 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 but I think European politics, especially in that era, were very complex and sticky. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I love his final scene. But other than that, as, as I said, I wish it was more character-driven and less event-driven. I see. I kind of agree with you. It, it already makes me nervous because um, this is directed by Isvan Shabo, by the way. Uh, he has two more nominations this decade. And he actually won for 1981 in Mephisto. Oh. And also with my don't also yes also with Klaus Maria Brandar who is an Oscar nominee this year for Out of Africa. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who he is really good here, really really good. I hmm, I'm just starting a bit nervous because I've seen Hanusen and Colonel Radel. I think those are very fascinating historical figures, but the films aren't always fascinating. Um, one of, I think it's very serviceably paced. You know, I I I didn't mind the runtime. I, you know, when I watched it, I'm like, well, yeah. That's true. I'll say that that it really whips by. Yeah. Like I think it's. Isn't it the longest nominee here? I, <laughs> I think it is. Colonel Riddle clocks in like twenty, a uh, two hours twenty. Yeah. Yeah, and and it, it it is the longest movie, and it felt the shortest of the nominees for me personally. Like, so I'll say that for it, it moves at a clip. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's part of the issue. I don't. I. I. I is, is that it didn't feel like there was enough time for me to really process. Despite that long runtime, there's not a lot of opportunities to really process what's happening. Yeah. One problem that I have with the film is that I think, I don't know if you, if you also experienced the same problem, but I didn't know that he was a homosexual until very late in the it's film. It's really weirdly shy about it. I, I got the first impression of it when he looks at the grandfather holding, uh, when, the, when he's schoolboys and he goes to, uh, on holiday to his best friend's uh, mansion and he sees his grand, the best friend's grandfather like hold the best friend's hand and there's this look on the boy's face. It was my first time I was like, oh, okay, he's a homo. And, and I can say that. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, they talk around it. They do kind of skirt it. They have a scene where he kisses another man. And they have hints of it. But I, yeah, I wish it was gayer. Bohemian Rhapsody. Like it almost feels um... like... If it's something you feel you you have to hide, then that should be more of a thing, I guess, is the actual process of hiding it. But you're not even actually doing anything. And when he has the one mistress, because he still has a mistress, 
that sets him up with another guy. It's okay. Does she do that a lot? Like, what's that like? Like, yeah. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it felt like that's the whole thing. Like that is the crux of this whole movie and they don't go into it. Yeah. <clears throat> like the third, the final act of the film is really the people around him, like kind of conniving to, and his homosexuality becomes the, the, the trap, you know, a, a very important thing in his fall. You know, um, he, he basically had a fall because of his homosexuality in the version in the film. Of course, that's there are different things in real life. Uh, I've heard otherwise. But I don't think the homosexuality aspect of his character really mattered in the first two acts. That's why suddenly when it was spotlighted in the third act, it's like, okay? Yeah. Because... It wasn't given that weight before, like um, that the scene with the, the the touching of the hand. Is it the grandfather touching him? Oh, was that what was happening? I don't know. I, I don't know. The eyelines that again? scene were so mix messy. I couldn't. I I honest. I I thought the grandfather was touching the uh, friend because they were seated next to each other at the table. Yeah, I thought. There was a sign of like abuse or whatever, but um, there's also, I think, when they went to the brothel and he watches his friend uh, have sex, I thought he was inept in bed, that he needs some reference with his friends. Well, see, that's the thing. I knew what they were going for in that because he also has the other girl narrate the way that the friend does it. Um, So I didn't think it was an ineptness so much as it was exactly what it's supposed to be, that he basically wants to fantasize about his friend. But again, it's so... I don't know. Again, when it when it when the movie suddenly becomes more about his rise, not suddenly, but when it focuses more on his rise in the ranks in the military and the politics and you know Franz Ferdinand and all that, and then then only later do we get into his actual homosexual affairs and that becomes the turn for his downfall. Prior to that, it's just hints. It's just him thinking about things. It's just him fantasizing about things. And now suddenly there's a hint that he's been active this entire time. It just, it feels like a payoff with no lead up. Yeah. And in the scene in the, kind of going back to the scene in the brothel, that scene kind of, I kind of questioned because he was going down the stairs and some someone kissed him. I don't know who that person is. Um, do you remember who that person is? Because I thought it was the guy that winds up in the jewel, but I didn't think that at the time because yeah. I thought he had a mustache in the scene where he kisses him. So then I... Yeah, I yeah. also thought that. I guess I just... For me, I just didn't know how much of him was active and how much of him was not active. If him with the Italian boy is like the one time he actually acted 
on his homosexual feelings and that was the what caused his downfall or it and it it was very vague that part and again if that's going to be your whole turn you need more than that yeah it is it is um it is very poor setup i mean because it is, as I said, a very well-performed and very handsomely mounted film. Yeah. And you have a very strong performer in that role who can convey other things. I mean, he is conveying things about his position in the military, in the, the way he actually sees uh, the the internal politics of it all he he gets he, he you know he you see him ruminating on these things but then just the homosexuality doesn't work the homosexuality part doesn't work in organically um, for it to be such a big thing at the end and like I said this Italian boy who is his is Achilles heel I mean I get that you know Italian boys can be your Achilles heel now. Um, <laughs> but, oops. Uh, but it just, it isn't, it isn't really well planted. Um, but, you know, to, um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, too, it credits uh, a John Osborne play with its source. Um, and I wish I had written down the title of that Osborne play, but I did look it up, and that was one that was banned by the British censors. Um, the because the one time it was performed, it had to be a special private thing; it wasn't open to the public, and it, because it was such an erotically charged drama that ends with a drag ball, that to then see this buttoned up movie adaptation is very disappointing i see yeah but it 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 goes i don't know it really instead of uh colonel rado uh instead focuses on you know the working going up with the ranks leading to the war uh Going into a film that is also about the war is when father was away on business from Yugoslavia. It period in Cannes, where it won Palme d'Or, Golden Globe nominee, and National Border Review Top 5. It is about um, a boy whose father was sent to a labor camp after... uh, a throwaway side comment regarding a, 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 a caricature in a newspaper um, got him accused of being uh, subversive. Subversive. <laughs> and then he then is put into labor count for years, separated from his family. So that is when father was away on business. So what do you yeah. think of this one? I was surprised by this one. I was pleasantly surprised by this one. I, I, I guess I, I didn't know what I was expecting. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really liked it. I, enjoyed, <laughs> I 
I liked it a lot. It, um, yeah, it reminded me kind of in tone of uh, Hope and Glory, um, which I thought was interesting because usually you do see these stories about family members being sent to camps or being disappeared or what have you. And I was also surprised too that it that that really is only a little bit of the movie considering it's the title but um it is very lighthearted. it is a coming of age story in a way it, and it's so um i don't know fun without trivializing the seriousness of um what's happening and like the official story it gets into family betrayal <laughs> or uh personal betrayals in a political situation when father was away in business also surprised me in structure and in tone because in terms of tone i did not expect it to be i should have expected you know the title already suggests that it's it's a perspective of a child but i didn't expect it to be this i don't know um still infused with childhood joie de vivre despite the whole political turmoil and it is so well constructed um, because a lot of the characters are distinctive and also with the structure because I thought the film was going to be the child and the family you know thinking about the father or like reconciling with the disappearance or like I already know that went away on business and like, oh, that's a code for something. But when the mm-hmm. film doesn't, when, when the father comes back and like, oh, there's, there's more to tell. And it's surprising in many ways because it's gentle, but at the same time, it has hints of darkness with the political context of it. Um, it is very rich in, in, you know, in the sense of environment with the characters around it. And I, I think it's a I think it's a it's a drama comedy that doesn't really take it it knows how to play with tone without minimizing the the serious topics that it has in its core which is this uh culture of uh violence actually you know violence on a very personal level as well you know if if the official story is this uh, finds levity between inside a drama. This one, I think it's on the uh, on the other side. I think um, it is light, but then finds moments of dramatic uh, tension, which is also really well balanced. Um, I don't know what to think of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, uh, as you said, the official story also finds that light to balance it. And I think. But when Father Was Away on Business does so well is by telling it all from the point of view of the child, um, what it does better than a lot of other movies, even a lot of other coming-of-age wartime movies, it shows that for kids, sometimes for some kids, like, it really is just... Life is going on. They're still doing their kid thing. They're still processing things differently. It's... And what I really liked is he really did seem like not a bad dad, a shit husband, but not a bad dad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It oh, also has the funniest yeah. suicide attempt I've seen in a movie. 
<laughs> oh yeah, it is. I mean, I thought like, oh no, and I'm like, oh girl, <laughs> it's not gonna work. Um, yeah. It is quite um, a funny film, despite its more serious undertones. Uh, interestingly, not the only funny film from this lineup. The last film from this lineup is Three Men and a Cradle from France, nominated for Golden Globe in 1986. It won a César for Best Film. It is about um, a man who asks two of his friends to wait for a package to arrive in his apartment and in a weekend. And for some reason, a baby ends up on the door and they think it's the package. That's why they take care of the baby. Um, and then they get entangled in a drug problem and parenting problem and uh, lots of problems with the baby coming in. Uh, this has been remade into a series uh, called Three and a Half Men with, in America, I think six six installments now. I don't know. Um, what? A rarity in this guy. What? what? Six installments. What are you talking about? Uh, because it was... <laughs> no, because it was remade. Yeah. In the United States. In 1987. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and there was, there's a series. I would look that up. A film series. There's a film. I mean, there, I knew there was two. Three Men and a Baby and Three Men and a Little Lady. In the 80s. Oh, and I now I get either. it. Now I get it. I get it now. I'm wrong. Well, somewhere done. Um... It was remade into a Hollywood film, and then the Hollywood film was made into six films of different languages. I was right somewhere down there. <laughs> All right. So, Three Men in a Cradle, directed by Colin Serrao. Uh, this is... What do you think of Three Men in a Cradle? I guess I, I liked it. It was kind of... Um... It was the one I was most distracted while watching it, like doing other things, because I've seen the American version, and which I also really love, and it follows the French version really closely. Um, what I liked about this, what I liked about the original French version is more um, how they handled the drug plot line, where they mm -hmm. have it, it's there, it's there for hijinks, and then they kind of get rid of it and it's like yeah whatever we're done with that bye and I love the ending that it spends so much time I, I, I mean spoiler uh <laughs> the the mom comes back the mom comes back to take care of the baby um but I I love I, as my memory serves correctly they do spend more time in the French version with the after effects of those men realizing oh I really liked being a dad like they I think they spend twenty the last twenty minutes of the film are them without the baby. <laughs> Wanting the baby back so I liked so that I I I yeah. thought it was very. I thought it was sweet. <laughs> it was so sweet. <laughs> it's such a wholesome movie. <laughs> Which one do you like better? The 1987 version or this one? I think they're both pretty equal. I think they both 
don't quite know what to do with the drug subplot now that they have one. But, um, and the American remake has bigger roles for women in it. Um, Because one of them is, you know, they're all like commitment phones, but one of them has an on-again, off-again girlfriend that helps them raise the kid. So I kind of do love that in the French version, they really force the men to just rely on themselves even when they try to get their moms and other people involved. Um, I don't know. They're, they're both great for different reasons. I do love the original, but it's, you know, it's Tom Selleck, Ted Danson, and Steve Gutenberg uh, when he was very hot. So, like, who can resist? I, I want to search that. <laughs> Steve Gutenberg. Oh, yeah. He's 80s Steve Gutenberg is so dreamy. Steve and Tom Selleck and Ted Danson are eternally dreamy no matter what the decade so i like the chemistry between the lead right (laughs) do go on i like the chemistry between the leads i like i even like the lighting (laughs) the way like it the sunlight comes through the window in a lot of scenes um yeah i like how straightforward it is um, all right, I'm gonna close the Stephen Gutenberg Steve Gutenberg tab right now because it's distracting. <gasps> um, whew, where am I? Oh, okay. All right, so another thing that kind of defeated my expectation because my expectation with Three Men in a Cradle is like, all right, this is probably like um a bro, bro film, you know, you know that that men do silly things, and then it's funny because they kind of bring a man child in them. Uh, you know that that kind of like buddy comedy. But then it starts to, you know, without losing the humor. I think this is a very funny film, first of all, and such a, such a, such a breath of fresh air you know, to have a funny film in conversation for this cat- this category. Um, I love how, despite its seriousness, it, it's 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 lightness. It is very. It is serious in talking about like how do men cope with gent with um shifting for with resp- you know, it's not even like gender roles. No, but it is responsibilities. It is, it is. But responsibility in general. Uh which is like because they, they don't care about children, you know, they wanna live their life, they wanna they wanna sleep around. You know, this is nowhere near their their game mm-hmm. at that point in their time and in their life and then suddenly they're 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 given this baby literally and then what ensues is very funny but at the same time there is this realism to it which makes it even funnier because you know it's you know that the humor is a, there is a distinct humor in it but at the same time it is it feels real, you know. When you laugh about real things, it's 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 even funnier. And I love that it's very thoughtful of its characters. It's not, it's kind of making fun of the men, but at the same yeah. time acknowledging that it is also a journey for these characters. They're not just the punchlines of this joke, uh, of jokes in the film. It's a really thoughtful film and appreciative um, too of parenting in general, like how much you have to shift in order to raise a baby 
Like they don't go to work, they stop dating, they don't have fun, they try to entertain, but everybody has to leave early so, because of the baby. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there are moments when it was both funny and touching, like teary eye, but also laughing just because of like, I don't know. There's also this appreciation with parenting, which makes me like, good for people who do parenting and try their best. But I am not gonna go there anyway. No, me neither. But but I do as far as touching and funny at the same time. The one I think of is the scene where the one where they divided up the shifts and. The two guys go to work and one guy's okay, okay, I got the baby. And it cuts to him and he's just going, How's your boo 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 boo? How's your boo boo? He's just playing with the baby. And one of the other guys comes in and he's immediately straightens up, like, No, no, that's right. It's just a burden. Like, I'm not having fun with this kid, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's tough it to convey, uh... like, verbally, but it's funny <laughs> and sweet. Yeah. It is, it is. And one of the most refreshing nominations that I've seen so far. I mean, it probably got in, you know, probably it got in because it's from France, you know, and they love to default to France a lot of years before. But it's a breath of fresh air. This kind of, when you've covered this, this category for like three and a half seasons now to see this kind of film, like, yes. Gosh, have to have fun. I don't see any swastikas around. <laughs> My gosh. No one's going to the camps in this movie. Yeah, the other four films talk about war. You know, uh, the official story with the Dirty War, the Angry, Har Angry Harvest, World War II, um, called Colonel Radel, World War One. When Father Was Away on Business is post-World War II um, communism split in Yugoslavia. And then you have this film about Three men in a cradle. Three men just <laughs> doing their best to be a parent. <sighs> I really love it. I really love it. Um, and th uh, I also have to... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say cradle. The French word for cradle being couffin and being spelled looking like coffin did make me go... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me a pause as well. Like, Three men in a coffin? <laughs> Where does this movie go? <laughs> My goodness. But it is a really good time. Um, interesting to note, this year, a lot of child nudity <laughs> is happening. <laughs> in, I noticed uh, that this too. Year hmm. I mean, when Father was had... in business is show... Oh, uh, uh, keep going. When Okay. Um... Do tell me if I'm missing something. Um, when Father was away in business, shows the two young boys being circumcised, and we get we actually get to see like a close up of the penis being circumcised, and then a boy and a girl taking a bath, and then the boy is starting to be be curious about sexuality. So. Um, we see a close up of the penis and the 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 women's privates, you know, with water. Vagina. So like, you know, vagina. No, I, I wasn't sure. You if can it's, say I don't it. Know the female anatomy. I don't know female anatomy. I haven't been there yet, so I'm sorry. But, um, <laughs> I just, I, 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 I like to be general, privates, but let's go to vagina. Um, women's vagina. Well, you said penis. Thank you for that information. It's a scientific no, term. I'm sure that, that's the, 
No, I'm sure that that's the penis. I'm not sure if that's the vagina. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but thank you for the clarification. You know your your ways, but um, with that, there's also a close up of the penis and the vagina, and then uh, three men in a, of, of kids, and then three men in a cradle. There's a scene when they were trying to change the diapers of the baby, and then the baby starts to pee. And then it's not a close up, but we do see the baby's privates as it pees. Um, conservative Twitter would not be happy with this lineup, I'm telling you. And I had just seen uh, Murmur of the Heart from 1972, uh, like a week before I started watching these, which is like a lot of underage nudity. So I was like, oh God, someone's going to put me on a watch list and they see this look. <laughs> Let me see my letterbox. Yikes. No, well, um, I guess the Europeans aren't so, I mean, it's just a part of life. And that's how it's treated in these movies. It's it's just a part of it. I mean, you're changing a diaper. You're taking a bath. That's That's natural. It never feels exploitative or weird. Also, my gosh, the way that they make baby poop in three minute cradle was so vivid and accurate <laughs> just an impossible volume in the weirdest color ah. <laughs> all right so uh, other things to note uh again i said a while ago armin Mueller style appeared in two films nominated not sure if that has happened in any time again um in the same lineup and then this is the first time there are two nominated films from female directors angry harvest and three men in a cradle the only times it happened again are 1996 2002 and 2006 so that's another history. First time with two female directors in this lineup. All right. So let's go to the other films that were nominated at the Oscars. A while ago, I was saying that there's another nominated film about the Mothers of Plaza de Mayo. Well, there is. There is a documentary called The Mothers of Plaza de Mayo from Argentina. Uh, it's about the mothers that keep on protesting for decades. It's nominated for Best Documentary Feature. And interestingly, the most acclaimed, I guess, the most acclaimed non-English language film this year isn't even submitted. And it's nominated for four Oscars. And it's ran from Japan. Nominated for Golden Globe. It won BAFTA in 1986, among other categories, plus makeup. Also nominated for adapted screenplay, cinematography, production design, and costume design. It won Boston for Boston Film Critics for Foreign Language Film plus Cinematography, Los Angeles Film Critics plus Music, National Board of Review plus Director, National Society of Film Critics plus Cinematography, and New York Film Critics. It was nominated for Best Director for Akira Kurosawa, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and won Best Costume Design. It is about... Um, I really want to get names right. Just a sec. I, I, I know the story, the gist. <laughs> but I want to get the story right. Uh, it is about um, 
It is about Hidetora Ichimonji, a warlord who decides to divide his kingdom among three sons. And then uh, internal competition starts and he is exiled <laughs> from all the castles. So he is now um, deserted. Meanwhile, these castles, these three castles starts to have like battles to conquer one another. Was it right? Is it yeah, right? a former warlord leaves his kingdom to his sons, tells them that they should work together, and instead they start fighting for power. Yeah, so uh, you've seen this film multiple times now. What do you think of Well, that? I love it! <laughs> I, I'm honestly not somebody who rewatches a lot of movies often. Uh, Ran, I do. Um, Kurosawa is always good. Always love him. But I do think this is his masterpiece. Um, I love the makeup on his leading man, Tatsuya Nakada, who, if you've seen, you know, Yojimbo or The Human Condition or. Uh, any of the many other films that he's done, you know that he is like a dream boat, like just this beautiful boyish face. And now you see him here, not that old, not the age of the main character, but made up to look. And it's just such a stunning transformation. <laughs> and it's an amazing, incredible performance. Like, I really do think this also should have been up there for best actor and best supporting actress. Like the fact that it has its four Oscar nominations um, is fantastic. Could have used even more and it would have fully deserved them. Um, is this one, correct me if I'm wrong, Coppola is like an executive producer on this film, right? I'm going to search it right now, but I do know that um, Sidney Lumet helped organize a campaign for Best Director for Akira Kurosawa this year. Um, I'm going to check right now who are are the people involved. Um, Producer, producer, producer. He's not showing, but maybe he is involved in pushing the film. Uh, But this is IMDb, you know. Um, All right, so I just have to concur with what you said. Tatsuya Nakadai Young on Google is such a gift. <sighs> He's good looking. And then also, uh, Ran, I think, is an overwhelming piece of filmmaking. Uh, it's unlike, I think this is my first Akira Kurosawa. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Welcome. That, it was it was my first Kurosawa as well. I really think it's the one that's most readily available, like even at Walmart and stuff. That's when we were when I was a teenager. <laughs> this was the one. It um, is. Just I was wrong. Staggering. I was wrong. By the way, I was thinking of Kagemusha. Kagemusha ah, the, was the, the one. Francis Ford Coppola produced. Yeah. It was Coppola and Lucas, executive produced, are credited as, as EPs on the international version. So basically they helped get it to America uh, with that financing. But Kagamusha, when you watch it, really does feel like a, uh, and it is incredible. But then you see Ron and you kind of realize Kagamusha is the dry run. Like the... Uh-huh. And Ron is the 
full out. Like, yeah, when you, uh, overwhelming is the word. It it, it is. Yeah. Y- you can't even fathom how anybody could have executed this. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I'm always so stuck. I was no. like, how do you even think, like, yes, and this will be the yellow army will go this way, and the red will go this way, and we'll have the blue, and we'll have them swirling around in this torrent. And I am able to get everybody organized, these thousands of extras, this crew, and everything will, you know, I can get it all together and organize in structures that it will look exactly this perfect. And then you watch it and you go, wow, he did it. <laughs> yeah. And. I like what you said about this being uh, like the fallout uh, because this is before CGI was very good. You know, this is like the era near Tron. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you also see the the massive scenes in this film so complexly blocked. You know, we can see battle scenes like very splintered, like chop chop, like oh camera here camera there but then you see multiple layers of blocking for like mountains in between or like castles and walls and burning and soldiers and that is like obviously like duh masterpiece directing but when also in the scenes of like um internal politics with the with the brothers and the wives and the mistresses the way those scenes are blocked, the way it is both very cinematic and stagey at the same time, it is a beautiful blend of those two. I really believe... I love Out of Africa. You do too. I really believe this should have won director. Um, it should have been nominated for more actor, supporting actress... Cinema, cinematography, uh, film editing, sound. Oh, yeah. There's already editing, sound yeah. effects at the time. Sound to score, makeup. It just, it, oh my goodness. It just, it's really, it feels like a very complete rendition of a vision. Like sometimes, you know, when you watch a film, like, oh, <laughs> you kind of feel like, oh, they probably like, you know, short on budget or like, oh. <laughs> Maybe Sometimes when you watch your Colonel Radel, you see that they have the uh, <laughs> the production value, Budget, but not the rest still of not it. There. What? Yeah. And then this, yeah, it doesn't miss a beat. Yeah, and it is a massive period piece that feels very alive. Um, thanks to the direction, the cinematography, that vivid cinematography is just like out of this world. Goodness sakes. I mean, huge respect to the African photography and out of Africa, but gosh, the cinematography in Iran is just like unbelievable. Um, I know, like I said, Sidney Lumet mounted a campaign um, for Akira Gosawa to get best director. I'm glad they believed in this one because this is one of the most inspired director nominees I've seen so far in this category and just a shame that um, because it wasn't it, it, it wasn't completed in time for Cannes it premiered in Tokyo Film Festival but then Akira Kurosawa, Kurosawa skipped the premiere so the Japanese industry kind of like and had bad blood on him that's why he wasn't submitted that year they submitted another film 
But more on that later. But I haven't seen that film, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's we'll great. We'll see if it tops Ren. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add to Ren? No. I, I, honestly, I meant to rewatch it for this, so it's not quite fresh in my memory. Um, so I'm only going off of mem- memory. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, pretty much just to reiterate that if if you are watching movies now and think, boy, the things that we can do nowadays, watch Ron, because they ain't doing it yeah. like that anymore. Yeah. It's fine. It's, it, I, I'm sure it's very vivid memories. And, you know, memories like the corners of my mind. <laughs> okay. All right. So Ron, it is Ron. I want to run to you. Okay, I give up. All right, so. (laughs) Song after song. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Song for every season. A tune for every title. Uh, (laughs) um, Now I'm thinking of songs for another titles. Oh my gosh. All right, so let's go to the submissions. There are 30 submissions. Um, I looked at the titles, and I think we can agree that the most well-known title here is Come and See from Soviet Union. It it premiered in Moscow, where it won a Golden Prize, and then also premiered in Venice. It is about a Belarusian boy who joins the resistance to fight Nazi occupation. Is this your first time as well to watch it? Yeah. Or has he seen it? It was it is my first time and I watched it last night. <laughs> I, I want you to start. What, what do you think of Come and See? Oh, I think it's great. Lee Mounted. Um, I thought it was a horror movie in the way that they do the sound, the way they shoot everything, the way they do the makeup. Um it it is a horror movie. Not just a war movie, a horror film. Like there's um yeah <laughs> a horror film that isn't thrilling or fun to watch at all but this is another one that despite its length and it is 2 hours and 23 minutes um it flew by for me even though you're watching some of the most horrendous um acts of um war atrocities it's heartbreaking it's wrenching to watch it is um it's great i don't know you know it has a sense of chaos of it has a sense of chaotic horror that reminded me of uh the finale of ken russell's the devils in much the same way where it's all this stuff that keeps happening and every shot introduces a new horror that you're like what the oh my god now that oh god oh jesus what more oh no i shouldn't have asked um without getting camp so it too is over yeah i um I tried I to like, sing ending, a song but... with Come and See. Oh, you hated the ending. Why? Yeah. 
Uh, I, I guess for me, I just, it goes on for a while. The edits that they do um, with him, with the boy shooting the picture of Hitler and going through all the archival footage, but rewinding it and again and again and again and going through all the way back to when he's a baby. That's like, okay, okay. And then he marches, then he leaves that and marches with the rest of the army and they keep going and that keeps going and it keeps going after the title card that tells you about the 680 Belarusian villages that were burnt to the ground. And that's our, and then it just keeps going with the marching. And I guess I just didn't get it beyond trying to keep images for as long as the Lacrimosa Requiem. Because I felt it was done. I I guess uh, hated is too strong a word. I guess for me it's more that you made your point. We've got it. I'm there. Why are we still going? All right. Um, come and see. I'm I I I've dreaded watching come and see. I mean, kind of excited, but also dreaded it. I know it's going to be horrifying. Um, stories of the film's production are notorious. You know, real ammunition. Oh, used. really? Uh, so according to the actors, sometimes they would only miss like the bullets would miss their bodies by like four inches. I was wondering, I was wondering about how the, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I have a lot of the, I, I already know a lot of these stories about come and see and um, it's always been told as one of the most depressing one of the most powerful anti-war films like all right let's see how powerful can it go and um fuck i made a mistake of <laughs> challenging this film <laughs> because it is one of the most exhausting film experiences I ever had. Um, you know, Kurosawa went full, went full out, all in with Ran. I feel Elem Klimov did the same yeah. thing with Come and See. And true to form, he hasn't made a film after this film. He didn't make a film after I don't think I would anymore. either. <laughs> yeah. I think after you get out of the editing bay on this one, you just get so emotionally exhausted. <laughs> Yeah. And the film, you know, when we talk about like, the official story where it balances drama with levity, this film doesn't even bother giving you levity. It is so set on uh, giving this horrifying vision of war. Like, it's almost very experiential. It's not yes. it's not depicting events from the war. It's making you have the closest possible um experience of being there and uh whew, it's exhausting just talking about this film. I feel my heart is really uncomfortable right now. Um it's like if if when father was away on business, it's like, you know, but for the young, life still goes on. Come and see is like, no, it fucking yeah. doesn't. <laughs> it is. And the first half of the film establishes dread 
very well. So that we, we reach the second half. It's this unstoppable series of unfortunate events. Yeah, it's a barrage. That, yeah. An- another filmmaker would look away. This doesn't even give you that uh, advantage of looking away. And for a point, you know, it's almost like an assault to the senses. That it's it's really hurting to see these things. It's really... Uh, the sound design is amazing. Brilliant. Um, cinematography is just stunningly horrifying. Um, and it's heightened. But... Uh, it is. But effective. Like I said, it, it's heightened, but it's never camp. It's never. It doesn't. It just kisses over the top, but a purposeful, um, calculated over the top that knows exactly how far it's gonna go. And the over the topness is also with the purpose. Mm-hmm. So. And I think that too is what that number at the end when they give the 680 villages along with their inhabitants were actually destroyed. Like it, it really, it gives you all that over the top detail and you go, my God, this is too much. And then it gives you the title card of too much. It's history. The showing that huh, there's really nothing that the imagination can come up with that is worse than what actually happens. It is, it is. And, um, Part of me doesn't want to see the film ever again. Uh, a part of me wants me to examine the film and see how it worked because as a filmmaker myself, I could only dream of doing something as powerful as this. I mean, I don't want to make films like this all the time, but just like, you know, maybe once I could do a historical event and it's powerful. Um, I'm, I'm kind of glad that this... This wasn't the winner that we're talking about because I can't talk about this for an hour. <laughs> I it's it's just really hard to shake off and I I told I told you a while ago like um well I had to like review the official story a bit before we started recording because after watching this film like I can't remember the the the, the other films I've seen for this year. It's oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. Makes you think. Makes you think. Um, it did remind. How bad we went. It did remind me in its epic length and its continued and yet wa- very watchable um, brutality of the movie I mentioned earlier, The Human Condition, which is a nine hour uh, trilogy. <laughs> uh, World War II Japanese movie starring Tatsuya Nakadai and uh, in much the same way you just see basically the life and soul beaten out of somebody for nine hours this only manages to do it in two and uh, what a relief but, but again the quality of the filmmaking is such that for me personally I think I could very easily watch this again not to get a thrill out of it of course but just it's just good. It's just a good movie. Well, may the force be with you because I don't think I can visit this anytime soon. Um, I 
Well, good thing we're talking about it. <laughs> yes, I I was afraid I was going to spiral into like, you know, going to lose myself once you reach this part of the discussion. And I did. I, I think it, yeah, as you say, I do think it is a difficult movie to watch. I think it very smartly, um, without announcing itself as such, divides itself up into vignettes. Um, him at home, him with the army, him with the girl, um, the island, the mission for the cow, and it all goes very fluidly. And indeed, you can also see in the way that it some of it is shot um, and that fluidity, how it influenced 1917, um, mm -hmm. the Sam Mendes movie. Oh, yeah. I saw there was a lot of moments, even the way that they filmed the burning of uh, the village was very similar to when he comes upon that burning village uh, in 1917. Um, so you can still see where its influence is felt um, 20, 30 years later. Um. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. It really ruined my mood to talk about common scenes. Oh. Um, and see, and that's interesting because for me, I find it, despite the difficulty, it is so well done that I, I'm kind of elated watching it and talking about it. Like, for, it's for me the same effect as the official story, Iran. Like, you just, it's just such a, it's just so good. Like, it's draining and yet gives me life. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, 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 when I was watching this film, I remembered uh, The Handmaid's Tale because that show is also unafraid to go into like unflinching horrors. But that is a very, that is a very uh, intimate perspective of the, of the, of the, Mm -hmm. of atrocities of, of of course it's like a fictional well, kind of fiction but based on true events i remember this one scene where uh elizabeth moss is dragged into like they're being hurt the women are being herded and they're gonna be brought somewhere in a truck and she looks around and she sees uh, obese women being examined fully naked because they're checking if they're still fertile enough to be um to be giving to be raped and be pregnant and that's television for you but in some ways the horror in that show is that because the perspective is limited like it's the rest is in your imagination with come and see it goes into these breaking the fourth wall moments and then there are some moments when it goes into this omniscient perspective which is suddenly we're not even with the boy anymore. We're just yeah. seeing soldiers burning the village, the, the, the barn. And then suddenly you see a, a girl gang raped just looking at the camera. And I'm like, I don't... Like, the director is very much in control. Okay. But you, you, the viewer, is not in control yeah. anymore. Very confrontational. Yeah. So that's come and see. Oh, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. Woo, three minutes in a cradle. Happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. <laughs> Woo, okay, comedy, comedy. All right, so that's come and see. Interestingly, 
you know, this year, this this decade in time, you know, Cold War, um, Soviet Union has been nominated quite a few times and actually has won in 1980. Interestingly, this is the, their most well-known submission, and it wasn't nominated. When I saw it, like, yeah, naturally, <laughs> I know why they didn't. <laughs> I got and it. And also, right, I believe it was delayed. Its U.S. release was delayed until 1987. 87. Yeah. And I mean, can come and see really compete with the Last Emperor, Moonstruck, and Broadcast News? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but uh, that's also a good year in film. Yeah. That's also a good year in film. I love The Last Emperor. It, yeah, interesting, interestingly, they nominated My Life as a Dog for Best Director. I have thoughts on that. <laughs> but I have heard, I think it's based on Inside Oscar, it had an aggressive yeah. campaign. Uh, yeah, but... This was the time when they weren't really shy of like, I don't know, maybe it's just the watchability of Come and See because it is really hard to watch. But when you get through it, you... I also think uh, a two-year delay does if you've already been nominated, or not nominated, but if you're already mm, kind of up for an Oscar and already kind of in the conversation two years before, it's harder to keep that conversation going even in the 80s. Like you could keep that shit up in the all the way through the 70s. But you do, I, I feel like you do see a change in that after the 70s of just how long a yeah, conversation the only about thing, a film can last. Yeah, the only thing who kind of uh, kind of uh, conquered that is City of God um, one year gap, you know, was submitted in 2002. Its awards bus was in 2002 and then it wasn't nominated and then suddenly in 2003, what? For Oscar nomination, what director? Adapted script, okay. Woo, okay, welcome to the party. That's true. Yeah, and I think also Miramax was kind of surprised with that one because their big push was Cold Mountain, and then suddenly like, see the R may release. Uh, this is Come and See from Soviet Union. I hope you come and see the film. Yes, whoops. Um, okay. All right, so I'm just gonna run down uh, the other not the other submissions because I will feel bad. <laughs> All Leaving right, them so out. The other submissions are, yeah, especially this time because there are only thirty submissions, and if I review like if I pick twenty, like who are the ten? <laughs> like I'm sorry, guys. Uh, so uh, Malambo from Austria. It is about a young man from the province who dreams of performing like Houdini. Dust from Belgium, it premiered in Venice. It's about a woman who murders his father after raping the wife of a black foreman working in their plantation. Jacques and November from Canada, it premiered in Tokyo. It's about a man dying of incurable disease, starting his own video diary. And uh, despite not being stated in the film, there were uh, parallelisms uh, drawn with AIDS at the time, especially given the 80s. Um, Scalpel, please, from Czechoslovakia, I pre in Moscow. It is about a neurosurgeon grappling with a difficult surgery of a young boy with a brain tumor. Twist and Shout from Denmark, it premiered in Moscow, one best actor there, directed by Bill August, who would direct Pella the Conqueror. It's about teenage boys falling in love with different girls. <clears throat> Deep Winter from Iceland, it's about a young widow who comes to stay with her in-laws in an isolated farm in a fishing village. 
Sagar from India. It's about a love triangle involving a wealthy man, a small restaurant or owner, and her fisherman friend. Into the Night from Israel. It premiered in Cannes. It's about a father and a middle-aged son trapped in unhappy marriages. Macaroni from Italy. It's directed by Ettore Scola. Nominated for Lebal. Stars Jack Lemmon and Marcello Mastroianni. It is about an American businessman who goes to Italy after decades and then he gets involved in a hoax. And then the film Japan Chose Over Run, Grey Sunset. It's about a university professor who is fired after being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, it won the Japanese Academy Awards for Best Film that year. Interestingly, Ran was not even nominated there. It was only nominated for a few tech awards. Okay. <laughs> so either, either the film had a different reception in Japan... Or industry people were still upset that they didn't show up in the in the Tokyo premiere, and then Yu Dong from South Korea, the one you're talking about, it's set in Joseon Dynasty. It's about a male dominant Confucianist society for who are forcing women into submission. And I will say, Frida still, yeah, yeah. That, go ahead, go ahead. That one I believe used to be available on the uh, Korean Film Archive on YouTube. Um, where you can watch classic Korean films from the 30s all the way to the present day for free. Um, so check that out on YouTube. That one was suspended for violating YouTube's guidelines on nudity and sexuality. Yeah, the poster seemed provocative, seemed uh, interesting. Yeah, there's a whole <laughs> period of uh, Korean erotic films from the mid 80s onward. Yeah. It is. Uh, there is. What? It is. It is. <laughs> and then Frida, still alive from Mexico. Big winner at the Ariel Awards. It's about the life of Frida Kahlo while she is dying. The Dream from Netherlands is about three socialist activists imprisoned for a crime they did not commit. Sounds familiar. Wives, 10 years after, from Norway. It's about three wives <laughs> meeting for a reunion. After 10 years of separation, <laughs> I tried. I tried to find for good signs. Nice. Um, the, the, the City and the Dogs from Peru. It's about four angry cadets attempting to beat the system. Yesterday from Poland, it's about four high school teenagers trying to stage a concert in the village until one of them is electrocuted. <laughs> Anna from Portugal. It's a docu-fiction film. It's about a poetical recreation of a woman's life through her memories. Um, Suliandra from Romania it's about a man who is helped by his father to fake insanity after he kills his wife The Witching Hour from Spain is about a fake magician and his wife who travels city to city until he meets a true magician Ronia the robber's daughter it's from Sweden it won Silver Bear in Berlin it's about a band of robbers who have to learn to live in the woods to escape captivity Alpine Fire from Switzerland. It won Golden Leopard in Locarno. It's about a deaf farm boy who becomes his older sister's lover. Whoa. Fa family dick. Just kidding. No. Um, oh Kwe God. Mei, a woman from Thailand, from Taiwan. 
uh, Golden Horse for Best Film. It's about a woman's never-ending struggle to keep herself and family fed and clothed. I don't know. That also sounds familiar. Uh, Oriana from Venezuela. It won Camera Door in Cannes. It's about a young girl sent to Hacienda. And then she learns about the life of her reclusive aunt. And then, I saved this for last. This is one of the rare cases when the Philippines did submit a film. Uh, in the early years, uh, they submitted This Is My Country. Um, it premiered in Cannes, directed by Lina Broca. Initially banned by the censors. It's about a man who is forced not to join the labor union in a printing press for employment benefits until the printing press closes and the people in the labor union ostracizes him and now he is forced to commit crimes just to make ends meet. Um, I Have you seen it? Haven't seen the I haven't seen the film, which is shame on me because it is one of the few Filipino films who made it to Cannes, made by a national artist. And we actually studied this film uh, in our media law class because there is a case about censorship, Gonzalez versus Carlo Katigbak. There are certain scenes in the film uh, which were contested by the censors. The first one is there is a scene um, showing protesters on the road kind of like the official story uh, that was banned uh, and then a scene where people talk in a in a strip club where they show like dancers naked or fully clothed oh, wow. that's also um, a scene contested in the Supreme Court case I'm sorry I just I, I just want I just want to I want to pull that case because I studied this case and I I I loved media law. <laughs> I thought I could be a lawyer, but then lawyer is hard. Um, yeah, it it was a very, um, it was a contested case because of several scenes in, in showing sex um, materials with nudity, and then it was also contested if sex and obscenity are the same. Um, the eternal question, but. Uh, yeah, and then it was only the ban was only lifted after it's can buzz. Um, I don't know. This is interesting because according to internet sources, it only screened in November nineteen eighty five. I don't know if that qualifies for the Oscars at the time, uh, but it you know it submitted, so maybe it did. Um, I really wish I saw this because I I heard it's one of the greats, and I've seen some of Linda Brock's works, and this is readily available on YouTube. Uh, kind of meh quality, but it has English subtitles. So if anyone wants to check this out, uh, you can search Bayan Ko 1985 because that's the Filipino title. Um, oh, I really feel bad. I really tried to watch this, but you know, schedule. Things happen. Yeah. I mean, I really wanted to message you like, do you want to watch our submission? I just want to hear your thoughts. But then, like, it would not be fair if I couldn't watch my own submission. Like, nope, that's not. Uh, but it's readily available on YouTube. Uh, still all right. Up. So other films. Yeah. Aw. Aw, thank you. <laughs> all right. So other films that were eligible. No. Other films that were released this year that were not submitted. Biggest one is a nine and a half hour documentary about the Holocaust. Uh, 
Shoah from France or Show Shoah. Uh, it won New York Film Critics for Best Nonfiction Film, Los Angeles Film Critics for Best Documentary, BAFTA for Best Documentary, National Society of Film Critics for Best Nonfiction. Uh, you've seen it. Can you tell me about it? Shoah, yes, nine and a half hour Holocaust documentary. No archival footage, just walks through the remains of the camps that were there, if there are any remains at all, and interviews um, people who were in the camps and people who lived in the villages by the camps. And if memory serves, it's been a while, they also interview some of the commanders who are like under house arrest. Um, I watched this over a couple of days, not just because it's nine and a half hours, but also because it the subject matter is daunting. Um, I actually watched it for 1986. It's weirdly one of those movies that um, shows up as an Oscar qualifier for both 1985 and 1986, Salvador being the other one. I'm not sure what that's all about. Um, but yeah, when I did my ninth, the year 1986 on my blog, Silver Screening Group, this is one of the ones that I watched. And I, I, I think besides being an important document, I think it's m remarkably well done. I think nine and a half hours is actually the right amount of time to tell this story. And even there, it, it can't get into the full experience of it. I think one of the things it does best is um, indict in their own words, um, villagers who saw the camps going up, who saw the people being shipped in and didn't protest, just accepted it as part of life. And, and then again, it is hard to say like, oh, why didn't they do something? Because you are living in a totalitarian state and survival is an instinct for people. But there's this wonderful, wonderful, there's this scene where uh, a guy who was a little boy in the camps returns to this town and the villagers all can say, oh yeah, we remember this little boy. Oh, it's terrible what they did to you and the people. Oh, blah, blah. And the camera just lingers. It just stays on them. The director called Landsman, he doesn't say anything. And they just keep talking and as the villagers keep talking, they say, I mean, sure, some of the Jews were terrible people. They had too much money, and I'm not surprised, but they went too far. Although, boy, if it, and as they keep talking, you see how rooted the anti-Semitism actually was, how they don't think of themselves as that way, but they can't help showing their own prejudice. Um, and they're saying this to this <laughs> Holocaust survivor who's just kind of sitting there and nodding and trying to still be, you know, polite while these people basically tell them, well, obviously we don't mean you, but you know, those other people. Um, it's just a fascinating moment in this movie and um, worth, I think that alone is worth the nine and a half hours of viewing. Um, for me, I nominated it for my awards for best editing and best director. And uh, I think it deserved those. Um, I tried to watch it casually 
because like um because after come and see, I'm just like really spiraled into after the, come and see. You wanted this. to watch Shoa casually. I was mistaken, <laughs> um, but you know, I was like, I'm while I'm working, I just wanted to be showing on a TV, and like five minutes in, like you know what, let's stop this. I five minutes in, it's already so. Anyway, it really would require me the strength um, to watch this, and my mom almost gave up on come and see. <laughs> and that's two and a half hours. <laughs> like you saw that with your mother. That's oh yeah. She 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 saw it and she fell asleep and then she woke up and then suddenly it's the second half and like, what is what? No 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 no. Oh gosh, it's not yet over. Oh shucks, it's exhausting, you know. But that's show. Heralded now is one of the greatest documentaries ever made. <clears throat> and just a quick rundown. Adieu Bonaparte from Egypt. It premiered in Cannes. It was set during the French occupation of Egypt. Rendezvous from France. It won Best Director. It's about it's an erotic drama about several men taking interest on in an aspiring actress. That sounds like Hollywood right there. The Woman and the Stranger from East Germany. It won Golden Bear in Berlin. It's about prisoners of war in World War One, where one escapes the prison and then has a relationship with the other prisoner's wife, and then the other prisoner returns. And then the descendant of the snow leopard from Soviet Union, it won Silver Bear in Berlin. It's about highland hunters called snow leopards who tries to make a deal with lowlanders and the consequence of the deal is that the Highlanders should give the hand of their daughter for marriage to the Lowlanders. Flowers of Reverie from Hungary it won special jury prize in Berlin. It's about a Hungarian soldier who must choose between imprisonment or enlistment. Police from France it won Best Actor in Venice. Stars Gerard Depardieu. It's about a policeman who is investigating drug rings. And falls for a mysterious woman. And a year of a quiet son. Of the quiet son. From Poland. It won Golden Lion in Venice in 1984. It was nominated for Golden Globe. It's about a romance between a Polish woman and an American soldier in World War II. Post-World War II. Alright, so we've had this discussion. Now, Walter, Walter, Walter. Do you think... Yes. Said and done, do you think... <laughs> Uh, we we, uh, do you think the official story is a deserving winner of this category? The nominees, yeah. Uh, me too. <laughs> um, Sorry, all right, was I supposed so to let's go just... further. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. Um, so let's rank them from five to one. Then, do you have your rankings now? I do. All right. So, what's your number five? Angry Harvest. My number five is Colonel Radel. What's your number four? Colonel Radel. My number four is Angry Harvest. What's your number three? Can I just say real quick, the reason why I ranked Colonel Radel above uh, uh -huh. really is a lot of the handsome production value. And I also, I think, just because the potential, I think, is so interesting. Um, okay, my number three, uh, Three Men in a Cradle. 
My number three is three when in a cradle. Hey! What's your number two and number one? Number two, when father was away on business, and number one is the official story. Same ranking. <laughs> um, if Come and See was nominated, would you pick it over the official story? Probably, yeah. If if Ran was also submitted and was nominated, most probably, would you pick Ran over Come and See? Yes. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, I would pick Come and See, and then Ran, and then the official story. But um, again, shame on me of not for not being able to see the Filipino submission. <laughs> I heard it was a great one. Uh, so. Walter, thank you so much for joining oh, me in this episode. Thank you for having me. It was really the, yeah, it was really the right film and the right year for us to talk. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad you came here, and I'm, I wish you come back. And again, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Silver Screener, and mostly, of course, my blog SilverScreeningRoom.com. That's SilverScreeningRoom.com. There you go. So you can find me. On Twitter at Carlos Ohano, this podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere again. Patreon page up and running. We're already halfway through the bonus episodes celebrating 2019 nominees. Uh, again, I'm wishing you all well. This is a goodbye for now. And together, let us break the one inch barrier. <laughs>